The following Downstage Center program was originally broadcast in September 2008. Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John Von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. Today we welcome Bernard Telsey, better known as Bernie Telsey. Hi, Bernie. Hi, how are you? <laughs> Bernie is a casting director, and you are the first casting director we've ever had on this program. Casting director for some current Broadway shows, which include Hairspray, In the Heights, Legally Blonde, South Pacific, Title of Show, Wicked, Rent, which just closed recently. Other shows in the past have included Dirty Rotten Scoundrels and Sweeney Todd, The Color Purple, The Drowsy Chaperone. I need to mention Bernie is also the co-founder, co-artistic director of MCC Theater, along with Robert Lupone. He was a judge on MTV's Legally Blonde, the musical, so television audiences saw you on MTV as you were searching for the next L. Woods. Also the casting director on the recent movie Sex and the City and the movie version of Rent. So, Bernie, welcome. Thanks. I think Rent is a good place to get started. And as we talk, feel free to to tell us what you do with the various shows, and it may differ from one show to the next. But Rent was really your breakthrough show as a casting director, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was my first Broadway show, uh, and it was so intense being at the closing the other night just because that kept racing through my mind. Of, Twelve years later. Know, yeah, and as much as that show was so much about everyone having a break, Michael Greif and Jonathan Larson and, of course, all the actors, it was a big breakthrough for me, too. So, Well, you had been working as an assistant casting director. You had been working in another office, so this was really your yeah, first no, I, own, I'd already it? had my own office at uh-huh. the time of Rent. I had been doing Off a program. lot of regional theater uh-huh. at the Goodman Theater and New York Theater Workshop, and specifically how Rent came about was I had just finished doing a, a rock opera that was called uh, I Was Looking at the Ceiling and Then I Saw the Sky by John Adams and uh, Peter Seller, Sellers. And... Uh, it was a big national tour of a rock opera that in those days they were saying, you know, was going to be like Rent, even though there was no Rent at the time. And we had found all these multicultural actors who did rock and opera. And uh, Jim Nicola, who ran New York Theatre Workshop, was looking for a casting director to do this new musical Rent. And he said, you know, I know you did that. Would you come do this? So their experience counted for something. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, basically he asked me to do that in a play called Quills. and. Uh-huh. I was so tired from having done this other musical. I said, is there any way I can do just quills uh, and not have to work on the musical? And uh, I'm glad he said no. You had to do both. So in putting <laughs> together the cast for Rent, what were you looking for? Jonathan was Jonathan Larson was so specific about what he wanted. He really, really wanted rock and roll and pop voices, not your musical theater traditional sound. And even though, of course, we auditioned every young actor that was represented, he was really specific about what he wanted. And he and Michael Greif were so clear about wanting a new sound. And it was hard. I mean, you know, casting an off-Broadway musical is hard enough. And then one that was not musical theater was really tough because nobody knew who the, you know, Jonathan Larson was. It was off-Broadway. And uh, we really had to go the non-traditional route. You know, even doing open calls back then weren't going to really bring a lot of people because, again, it was for a $300 a week job off Broadway. So so, uh, how, so how did you find these people in? You know, we really became detectives. Uh, I mean, we were looking and looking and looking. You know, Adam Pascal, who played Roger, you know, we found from putting a little, you know, those little ads in the back of the Village Voice where it says, hi, you want to be a rock star? Call me and I'll teach you. 
we called all of those vocal teachers and said, do you have any clients? Do you have anybody that you can offer this opportunity to? And we tried to build it up like it would be great for their clients. And, you know, that's how we led one thing or another to, you know, Adam or, you know, we did a big call in a Latino hall and that's how we found Wilson Heredia. It was stuff like that. So I would imagine in that case that you were dealing with a lot of people who didn't necessarily know how to audition for theater. They may oh, have yeah. known how to perform a song. So did you have to help them through that process at the time? Yeah, it was a lot of that. I mean, even specifically Jesse Martin, you know, who was an actor who was doing plays and commercials, had never sang, you know, and I knew him. We were close and he was doing a play up at Hartford Stage and you know, I drove up there and begged him to come in and sing. And he's like, I don't sing. Well, of course Jesse sings. We've all heard him sing. He's an amazing singer. So it was, you know, a lot of it was trying to convince people that it wasn't a typical musical and it wasn't like normal musical editions. It was just come in and be yourself and sing these, you know, contemporary type songs. So ultimately it became a lot of coaching and a lot of leading performers on as we did open calls around the country when rent became you know a sensation but it really was a lot of re-educating young singers on what this was well you've already led to what was going to be my next question certainly once that template of that cast had been established and you had to deal with so many companies was it a case of then people came in, they knew the material, they knew what you were looking for, or was it still, you know, looking in the backs of the alternative weeklies all around the country? Yeah, it still was. I mean, you know, the great thing about Rent, it became so well-known and, you know, such a, a famous kind of show, and the and the actors and the cast got a lot of attention. And what was great about Michael Greif, he continued to want individuals in that show. Great personalities, great voices, but they didn't have to necessarily be a carbon copy of the original cast. They had to be unique as the original cast. So, you know, we just started doing open calls all over the country because there was a time we had five companies of rent happening at the same time. And again, credits didn't mean anything because we were looking for 20-year-olds. We just had people come in and, you know, yes, this time they were coming in and singing the score because they knew the show. But... It was really tough still, but we, you know, found people all over the world. You know, like, I think every state that we did an open call, we actually cast someone. You know, that's what was so great about going to the closing the other night. There was this huge reunion, and there was, like, you know, over 700 alumni there. And for me, even actors I hadn't seen in years, I was like, all right, you're the one from Miami. You know, you're, you know, you're the person we found in Atlanta. You know, it was because it worked. It was like pre-American Idol days. And, you know, we used to have a thousand people at a time show up in D.C. and Florida and Chicago. It was pretty exciting. Well, when you're casting people either as replacements in New York or in these various right. other companies around the country, you've got the original template, the original cast to go by. So you can kind of envision so-and-so in that role. Right. But how about the original show itself? How do you envision who's going to be Roger, who's going to be No, me, I mean, that was else? what was really tough and exciting because, uh -huh. you know, that was... I mean, working with Michael Greif and Jonathan Larson was so thrilling because they, you know, Jonathan had ideas from what he wrote, but then again, they were really open to the personality telling the story. I mean, you know, at one time Maureen was described 
much differently than Adina Menzel, mm-hmm. you know, or a Collins, you know, Tom Collins, the part that Jesse Martin played was originally described as a young white guy, mm. you know, but Michael and Jonathan said, Bernie, listen, let your imagination fly, bring in great young people. You know, we know at the end of the day, we want a cast that's multicultural and, you know, all different races. But right now we're not labeling that. The audition process will do that. So for me, it was like this huge, you know, canvas to play with. So So, we brought in all different kinds of people. And then when you saw Jesse Martin, he was like, okay, he has to be that. So for you as a casting director, it's kind of like, you know it when you see it. Yeah. As opposed to having preconceived. Yeah, that's what was so wonderful. They had to have certain vocal ranges and the kind of power vocally. But Michael and Jonathan were so open to allowing me in my office to just bring in great people. It's interesting. In the final company, the actress playing Mimi was African-American, right. not a Latina woman. Was there flexibility throughout? Oh, yeah. Always. So so what kind of changes? I mean, depending on where you saw it. I mean, no. certainly you sort of had to have the Jewish guy is, as Mark, Yeah, yeah, we right? had our templates, you know, I mean, you know, each one had, you know, Angel could have always been anything but white because we didn't want that many, you know, you know, Caucasian cast members, you know, you know, in those lead story. But, you know, Angel, we had Latina, we had African American, we had Asian, we had, you know, every ethnicity over the course of 12 years play Angel. Uh, Mimi, you know, couldn't be white, you know, there were certain things like that, but we had an Asian Mimi at one time. We had African-American, mixed, uh, Dominican, Latino. So, you know, it was still broad, even though there was a template. You've already said, you know, 12 years at many as five companies at once. How hands-on are you, were you, yeah. with Rand? How hands-on can you be, given that John's already read this list of however many other shows you yeah. had in the meantime. I mean, it's, you know, tough. That was what was so wonderful. The other night I was like, God, I remember the days of Rent when, you know, that was the only Broadway show I, my office, was working on. And nowadays, you know, there's it's a much different situation. You know, with Rent, you know, for the first, you know, probably seven years, I was working on that show constantly in those callbacks with Michael Greif and Tim Weil, the musical supervisor and the producers, of course. But over the years, as everything, you know, I have an incredible staff who, you know, not only are there 12 people, there's, you know, seven who have been with me over 10 years. There's three different casting directors over the course of the life of Rent that have all worked on Rent, but they've been there from the beginning. So even though Bethany might be doing the sessions for the last three years with Michael Greif, she's been in the office for 12 so it, it's very much like that. We're all very tight, and we, the the senior casting directors, you know, we meet twice a week, and we're really all talking all the time about things. Well, you, you've mentioned Michael Greif, the director, a number of times. Yeah. I presume over the twelve years of Rent's run that you have uh, that, that Michael Greif rather has been involved with the casting decisions. Oh, he as has. I mean, that guy is amazing. If you haven't had him on your show, but yeah, I mean, he to this day, you know, has maintenance and watched. I don't think there's a week that goes by he's not at a performance of that show, which is such a turn-on for us because it's it always makes us want to work harder and find that person that, you know, he's going to be able to change their life and direct and inspire. I mean, he's amazing with that company. Well, how, how typical is it for the director to stay involved over the run of a show, especially when it's a long run? Yeah, I mean, they all do. I mean, you know, they all do. But, you know... 
every show has associate directors that also work on the shows with them. I mean, you know, our situation with Wicked and Hairspray, you know, those directors, Jack O'Brien and Joe Montello, are extremely involved. You know, I mean, yes, they have associate directors because, you know, there's just so much to do. You know, with Wicked right now, there's, you know, eight companies probably worldwide. Uh, so although Joe is involved in every casting session, so is his associate director. And stuff like that happens, and that's why sometimes there's another casting director in my office that does, you know, the sessions as well. well. Are, are they involved in every casting decision or every major, every uh, alphabet, you know, every know, Every Glinda? show is different, and uh-huh. it all depends right at the time, right at the moment. Sometimes uh-huh. it's left between Craig Burns, who's a casting director in my office, and the associate director because – you know, that director is not available. They're directing another project out of town. So they can't be there when we're needing to hire, you know, an ensemble person tomorrow. One, one, one of the citizens of Oz. Yes, exactly. Perhaps. I mean, those people, you know, all of a sudden you get a notice today, so-and-so's out and we need someone in a week. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no way Joe can be here, but that's why he has a an associate director and then she makes the decision. Whereas obviously Alphabet's a little bit yeah, more of a major you know, we do when we do principal auditions and major, those are booked and scheduled around knowing that Stephen Schwartz and Winnie and Joe and people like that are all around. Winnie Holtzman. Yeah, Winnie Holtzman. And Joe Mantello. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, we're talking all about your process so quickly. Sure. I think it, it it's important for us to talk about how you got started in the theater. I don't imagine you were involved in your third grade play going, you know, <laughs> this kid should have played that part. So, so I think I had that opinion, but I didn't know. <laughs> there was a, I didn't know. I was busy running and administrating the theater club, you know. I, I mean, I knew I wanted to go into this industry producing or what that meant. I knew I wanted to run a theater company. I Very early on in high school, I got involved in a theater company outside of the high school, you know, a community theater company. And I was very close with the uh, artistic staff. And, you know, that's how I got my ride to and from the theater. So I always had to go to rehearsal three hours early and stay an hour late. And, you know, I just got really interested in how things are run and how they make happen. Uh, So I went to NYU for uh, acting and theater management. At that it's time. an interesting dual degree. Or yeah. is it actually a dual degree? Well, or did you just know, combine it into one? No, it was, it was a BFA in acting. But at that time, NYU was just starting a theater management program. Right. Uh, you know, and so every, you know, so I was able to sort of take all of these classes. And I had gone to a business school for a year and took accounting and all of that kind of stuff before NYU. Uh, Why the combination? So many people would think about, I'm going to be an actor or I want to run a theater. Because, you know, in an undergrad program, there was, I couldn't find a real program that was about theater management, you know, full-time only. And I knew I still wanted to learn about acting and find out more about what it means to be a performer, you know, and I and I guess I wanted to act. I mean, it was quickly, you know, one month into being at NYU, I knew I didn't want to act, but I had already had this program and I had to finish three years. So I just started doing more and more producing classes and uh, I took – you know, business classes on the side at the NYU program and then started interning, you know, at the Wooster Group, at FedAPT, at, you know, every, the Harold Clerman Theater. I started doing, you know, every management internship I could do so I could sort of learn, you know, about the other side. Before we zoom past your acting sure, career, sure, sure. we should say, <laughs> get the chronology right, you uh, understudied yes. uh, a star most people would know at one point. You were understudying Matthew Broderick. Right. Uh, right when I got out of school, 
I knew uh, a casting director, uh, and because I wanted up working for her, but she brought me and Meg Simon and Frank Human to audition for Neil Simon and Gene Sachs because they were looking for an understudy for Bright Beach Memoirs. And it was pre-Broadway at the time. It was trying out in San Francisco. And uh, Tim Busfield, who we also all know as an actor. 30-something. 30-something and a director. He was the initial understudy, but was doing a TV pilot that had gotten picked up. So he had to leave. So they had these emergency so you were the auditions. Replacement I was the replacement understudy for L.A. and San Francisco. And Broadway, unless his pilot didn't get picked up, then he'd be back. So he did San Francisco and, you know, I mean, and then, you know, started rehearsals in New York. And then his TV show got canceled. So he got to come back and I lost my job. <laughs> and was that the sum total of your professional acting career uh, <laughs> before you veered off? Or? No, I wound up doing a stint on The Guiding Light for about six months as a young uh, uh, Michael Riedel. Now as a young uh, uh, Enquirer, you know, reporter <laughs> and uh, in the town of uh, whatever that was, Pine Valley or something. Uh, and that was it. You know, I mean, I did a little thing at Circle Rep, off, off, you know what I mean? But. So why that so quickly it. disaffected oh, with the act? Because I just didn't. I, you know, I never liked it really in school. The idea of s- sitting around and sort of you know waiting for things to happen and going really deep emotionally and then sharing all of that, I, you know, all of those things that I knew you had to do. I, you know, I mean, maybe if I was interested in going to California and doing sitcoms, I probably would have been happy and I was probably good at that or I was f- better at that than you know wanting to do the amount of training that one would have to do to be a really good actor. And I just, I never really liked it. And then when I fell into casting, I immediately, like on the second day, loved it. You know, quickly, you know, one of my NYU teachers, Barbara Houtman, who at that time was running TDF, she's the one who introduced me to Meg Simon and Frank Human because they were looking for a part-time casting assistant. Well, it's interesting that... uh you learned very quickly you did not want to be an actor, yeah. but now what you do is work with actors I all know, the time, I, casting them. Did that actually... I love them. You know what I mean? And I loved... Uh, so I didn't mean to interrupt, but I loved seeing them in class when somebody uh, was, like, really good. I'd be like, oh, my God, I can't do that. How can I help that, though? You know, you know what I mean? And that's... Well, that, that, that brief acting experience, is that something which other aspiring casting directors should have in their resume, some degree of acting so you could kind of understand what well, the actually they do for? you know uh, i mean i'm you know have a lot of casting director friends and we're all part of a society and we're all part of a union for film and tv and you know i would say 90 percent of casting directors at one time were actors mm-hmm. you know or directors you know which i think is essential to understand the process and to know the levels of the process and what training is and all of those kind of things i think because we're asking a lot of actors and you have to understand where they go and where they come from. So I think it's a necessity, actually, if you're going to go into casting to understand acting. Well, you say you just kind of fell into being a casting director. What had you intended to be? Well, because when I graduated were... NYU, I thought I was going to you know, go work for a producer. Uh-huh. Uh, and NYU was amazing at you know, job placements. You know what I mean? They were like, you could go here, you can go there. But also, right when I was graduating, I met Bob Lapone. We started this little club. You know, which was the beginnings of MCC Theater. And uh, because I met him and we started, you know, I mean, I might have been only 21, but, you know, I was convinced we'd have a theater company in six months. You know, you're very idealistic at the time. And 
was so excited and passionate about starting this theater company, I didn't want to go take a full-time job. You know, and I remember Barbara and NYU, you know, like we could have gotten job interviews at Manny Eisenberg's office and all these great New York offices. And I was like, I don't want to work full-time because how am I going to start a theater? You know, it was that kind of thinking. And then she said, I know these people who are looking for a part-time, but it's casting. And I was like, what's that? I didn't really know what it was. <laughs> and you were going to start a theater company. Yeah. <laughs> and you know what I mean? And it was like, okay. And I went to meet Meg Simon and Frank Cuman, and I started out by doing their accounting and their books because I had that accounting background and I loved it. I mean, I just started going to the theater with Meg all the time. You know, I know what it's like now in my office. You know, Meg and Fran would go to the theater all the time as casting directors. And at 7 o'clock after being done with those sessions all day, they'd realize they had theater tickets and didn't make social plans. And they'd be like, oh, Bernie, you want to go? Mm-hmm. I'd be like, yeah, I'll go. You know, and it was all over town seeing all this great theater, seeing all these incredible actors. And it was like, oh, my God. I mean, I get the chills just thinking about those days. And it was like, how can I help that actor? And how... Can I see more? And I winded up working with Megan Fran for six and a half years, you know, while I was starting the theater company kind of thing. And it became this parallel that it was so easy to let go of acting because I can't do three things. <laughs> you know, you know. Well, in, in a way, it's kind of like <laughs> actors who have this stereotypical job as a waiter, as a day job, so they can do their acting. Right. Uh, you, your day job was as a casting director. Absolutely. So and at night you were we developing were doing for about, about five years, I guess. Well, you graduated in 81. Yeah. And MCC yeah. really got established in 86. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. It was exactly that whole yeah. thing. We started, you know, exactly that. I mean, when I left Megan Fran, it was because... I needed to really put all of my time and energy into MCC, you know, even if it meant no money. It was like, you know what, we really got to take this serious. We're going to produce our first play, and I really need to be available. And that's why I left them. And then ultimately I, you know, wind up working in another casting. So jumping to MCC, what was the first play you produced? Uh, we did an evening of one acts, uh-huh. and uh, the big play was Beirut. You know, by Alan Bound, and you know it was starring Marissa Tomei at the time. You know, before she was Marissa Tomei and <laughs> Michael David Morrison, and you know it got one of those you know love letters in the Times by Walter Goodman at the time. You know, it was like this love letter review of this you know Romeo and Juliet of the eighties. You know, this first heterosexual AIDS play. You know, it was right around the time of As Is and Normal Heart, but this was the supposing heterosexual point of view and uh, then these producers moved into the West Side Arts off Broadway and you know MCC took off was there a particular artistic impulse behind MCC or it was just you and Bobby Lapone said we want to put on shows yeah I mean the you know initially during those years of being a club and a group uh, it was about being this place that actors and writers and directors can really work out and really do things that they're not necessarily getting to do in the marketplace or in where they're having their careers. You know, it was it was set out to be like a big gymnasium kind of thing. Never a fixed company, never, you know, even though we had a group of artists that we regularly worked with, it was really about taking chances. You know, and then Will Cantler came aboard and really joined Bobby and I, and then we just started uh, picking plays. You know, that really felt like they were taking risks and, you know, making people want to sort of sit up and talk kind of thing. 
Was your purpose to develop new playwrights, new actors, both? Uh, yeah, it was a little bit of all of it. You know, uh-huh. the idea was to develop, of course, new plays, uh-huh. and with that, showcase new actors and new directors. Uh-huh. Even though, you know, we started pulling from my casting experience that I was starting to gain, you know, but the idea was new, you know, in all aspects. Now, you'd said that. It was in 86 that you stopped working with Megan Fran in order to focus on MCC. But if I'm remembering the chronology correctly, it was only two years later that the Bernard Telsey company, the the forerunner name company, began. So so how how were you balancing these? Yeah, it was crazy. You know, I started doing the theater company full time and... You know, quickly. Then I was friendly with Risa Brayman and Billy Hopkins, who were two casting directors at the time. It, they were kind of the hip office. Yes, they so were the, the hip way, office. The way you became the hip yeah, office. Yeah, they were the, eventually. you know, they were doing EST and they got those early New York movies, Desperately Seeking Susan and Oliver Stone movies, and really got well known for, you know, introducing New York talent to the film world. And I knew them, and they were just branching out, and they asked me to come on board. And freelance with them casting-wise. They knew I was starting this theater company, just like they were both directors of plays. They said, come on board and do this HBO project or do, you know, they had just gotten the Lincoln Center account, Lincoln Center Theater, because Gregory Mosier was reopening it. And they said, come do House of Blue Leaves with Billy, you know, and just do that play. And then it turned out to, okay, come do the front page with Jerry Zachs. So I was like sort of their freelance... You know, okay, I can't do something this... You know, I was a freelance for them, and I worked for them from, like, 86 to 88. And we wind up doing this big commercial uh, for uh, Richard Avedon. And we got all these great... Or I got all these great theater people to be in it. Ron Vauder from the Worcester Group and Robert Joy and Larry Brigman. And it was all these, like, theater actors at the time to do this big IBM spot that you never see in commercials. And... In the advertising world, it took off. Like, literally, Billy and Risa were, like, called, come do this commercial. You know, all these ad agencies started calling, come do my commercial, come do my commercial, and they had no interest. They were like, it's not what we do. We're doing our movies and plays and directing. You go do it. So, you know, it was like 88, and I was like, oh, okay. And I opened up my own office primarily to do all these commercials while running the theater company and out of the MCC office I had a little separate line and I was casting commercials and so what was non-stop the first, what was the first Bernard Telsey company play or musical I you know Peter Sellers basically I started because I knew him from when I was at Megan Franz and he had taken a hiatus he asked me to do uh, a multi-raced uh, production of Merchant of Venice that he was going to tour in Europe and then do at the Goodman Theater and when I cast it and I did, and you know, I cast John Ortiz and Philip Seymour Hoffman, who they like to say, while they did that for a year, they came up with the idea of the Labyrinth Theater Company. Huh. Uh, but that was the first sort of, you know, and Paul Butler was in it, and I mean, it was these great actors, and that was probably the first thing I did on top of the commercials. And then because of Merchant of Venice, Bob Fall saw it because it was at his theater, and then he asked me to do this one play, and Mark Lamos... And they told two people, and they told no, two no, people. No, exactly, and then Mark, <laughs> you know, and, right, and then Bart Shear saw it, and then he brought me on to Hartford Stage, and then it became, 
oh, wow, I'm not doing just commercials. I'm doing, you know, the Goodman and Hartford. And it started like that. So let's stop for a second from the biography (laughs) and ask the obvious question. What is the process for a casting director to do a show? You're called typically by a director? Yep. You know, I think it's 50-50. It's either producer or director. Mm -hmm. You know, probably it's the person who's taking the lead lead. You know. Okay. They send you a script. Do you ever read a script where you say, I don't want to cast this? You know, happens more in the film world, you know, because we do a lot of movies now. It happens in that arena more than the theater. Uh, The theater community is really about relationships and really about collaborations. And I might sometimes not get that play necessarily that I would not produce it, but I'm not being asked to produce it. I'm being asked to cast it and find the actors to work with that artist. And that I relate to and that I respond to and it's fine. Well, let's say you get a call from either the director or the producer who says, Bernie, we want you to work on the show. I'll send you the script. Right. Is that the first thing that happens? Yeah, I mean, if I don't know those people at all and there's no one on the team I know, yes, send the script and it's got to be about the script that I somehow connect to. Mm -hmm. But, you know, 80% of the time it's a director or a producer who I already know and they're saying, we're Mm going to be doing this. We want you to cast it. And Mm -hmm. it's like, of course. If the schedule worked out, of course. Okay, so uh, once so you, we read it. Yeah, once you accept it, then yeah, then don't, uh, you know, we read the piece just to got, try to get a sense of it. But even more than that, it's then about connecting to the director or the writer. You know, sometimes more than one writer if it's a musical rather than a play, and really trying to get inside their brains because I feel like you know our job, my job as a casting director, is to fulfill their vision. You know, I have a taste and I have ideas, but I need to really fill, you know, their vision and what do they see. And I need to get as much information. And sometimes it's clinical, but sometimes it's, you know, like when we were talking about rent. Mm -hmm. I don't know, but I want someone who's going to wow me. Mm -hmm. You know, Bernie, be free. I don't care if Tom Collins is like Bruce Springsteen or like, you know, African-American or something. Well, let's, let's, but let's, sometimes people are very specific, too. Yeah. Well, we, we've, we've talked about Rent. We talked about Adina Menzel. Let's talk about Wicked. Sure. You cast Adina in that. Sure. Did you go, when you got the script for Wicked, did you say this is perfect for Adina or was there a different process? Uh, yeah. You know, every one of these is a different process. With Wicked, they had already been involved in a few readings of the piece uh-huh. before I came on. Uh-huh. Uh, and they had already knew of Adina. Obviously, she had been nominated for the Rent. And, and they had kind of developed it around Kristen Chenoweth. Right? Yes, Originally. they already had Kristen Chenoweth, and they were right at that stage of, do we, do we not? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you know about Adina. They had liked her, but wanted to know. They felt like I had just done, you know, five years of Rent and knew all the other young artists that were out there. Uh, and they were looking for my, you know, opinions and, and suggestions. Uh, and, I, you know, I was a big fan of Adina's and really actually thought based on what I was being told and what they were looking for that, you know, I felt like they had their girl, <laughs> you know, which they did too, of mm-hmm. course. But, you know, I mean, so, you know, then it was the rest of the company that we then, you know, put together and then, so. You read the the script. Yeah. You sat down with Winnie Holtzman. You sat down with Stephen Schwartz. You picked their brains, what they wanted. Yeah, and in that Joe case, Mantello it was first with Joe. I Joe mean, Mantello. Joe is who I knew. We had not – we knew of each other. Mm-hmm. I had not cast for him yet, and he asked me to come on board. 
and then introduced me to, you know, Stephen and Winnie and, uh, it was mostly vocally, you know, vocally to talk to Stephen and, you know, Joe had all ideas, you know, they were still developing Fierro and Bach and, you know, Madame Marble and stuff like that. And, you know, would I start by putting together ideas for a reading? And did they develop the roles then around the characters that, that you cast? Like like Adina's role did expand. Yeah. Cast I mean, once the cast was set, that's what's so so beautiful about an original company. You know, then they wind up writing. I mean, they wrote that around Adina, you uh-huh. know, like they had done the year ahead of time with Kristen. Mm-hmm. You know, once, I think they had done a few readings with some other women before Adina until they saw her and said, she's our girl. By the same token, as Wicked developed, and we've talked about it on other editions of this program, the show tried out in San Francisco, and there were some decisions to change some cast members. So what role, what what was, what were your instructions, what was your the guidance that you were receiving when ultimately they wanted to go a different way with the wizard, for example? Right. You know, I mean, those things are tricky, as always, you know, replacing actors, because sometimes it's not about not liking someone. And, you know, you know, what I mean, there's always different scenarios and different opinions. But, you know, in that case, it was about we're doing this. Bernie, you know, give us another list of ideas for wizards and uh, let us know who's out there and what's out there. And, you know, that one was more... Uh, cut and dry because you know there's a certain list of actors at that age with that much stature that are going to be right and everyone's going to go I like him or don't like him and they immediately loved Joel Grey and they knew who he was of course and some of them knew him incredibly well and it was sort of an easy natural fit Hmm. you know many of the shows that you have cast have been a little bit um, odd in the sense of certain requirements. Like, I'm thinking the recent revivals of uh, Company and Sweeney Todd, right. where the actors played the instruments on stage because the director, John Doyle, decided he wanted the actors to play. What kind of a challenge does that present to you? Do you look for musicians who can act? Oh, actors completely. Who can play? You know, I mean, that's the great thing about <laughs> what we do, because as much, you know, the minute we think we know everyone, I've been doing this for so many years, I know everyone that's good out there. Of course I don't. It just reminds me every day that there's thousands of actors I don't know, you know, which is why we love to do as many auditions as possible because it's how we meet new actors. But specifically for that show, you know, I remember the first day Richard Frankel called and Tom Vertel called the producers and it showed already closed in London, so I couldn't go see it. Sweeney Todd. Yeah, Sweeney Todd. But they had said, this is what we need. It's like, you know, I might be doing this 25 years, but... I maybe know some actors who play piano, but that's about it. Mm-hmm. You did not know that Patti LuPone had played the tuba in her high school band necessarily. No, right. Or I had no idea of an actor who plays cello. You know, you know what I mean? I mean, you know, the leads, there was some room about how much they had to play. But, it, you know, then you immediately go, okay, it's like being a detective. I didn't know rock and roll singers, but how am I going to find Adam Pascal? Well, in this case, how am I going to find a girl that can sing Joanna? That I know but who also plays cello and same thing with, you know, the sailor who plays harp and those kind of things. So you start, you know, part of being a casting director is really being a detective because you then have to go and search and you put on your hat and you put on your glasses and you're like, where will I find? Okay, let me go to every music school and every, every, you know, the Juilliard music school. And let me find all those people who play those instruments and see if they also sing. And, you know, and you wind up doing pre-screen auditions, you know, which is 
a way for us to see people without necessarily using the time up of the director and the creative team. But I can be in auditions eight hours a day seeing new talent, you know, and then narrow down the process for the director. So which becomes the overriding uh, factor, playing the instrument, being able to sing, being able to act? You know, it was it was a real combination of both. Uh-huh. I mean, they had to play. No ifs, ends, or buts. They so, had to play. It was like they could go take music lessons to learn how to play. No. They had already had Whereas they can work within the vocal and, you know, every director can make an actor better, which John Doyle is a genius at. Uh, so we were able to take liberties on people who might be, you know, beginning actors necessarily. But they had to start with playing the instrument. I was going to say, how about uh, La Boheme on Broadway? Yeah, that was, that was opera based. Did you look yeah. for opera singers? Yeah, exactly. Act? I mean, there was Baz Luhrmann saying, I want, you know, the 20-year-old opera singers to play, you know, Rodolfo and Mimi. And, it, you know, it didn't matter that you'd be like, even in the opera companies, they're not 20. You know, they're 45 <laughs> when they play those parts. Mm. You know, but, like, I don't know if I could really say that to Baz Luhrmann. You know, he, you know, and not only did he want two, he wanted three couples because, you know, we're doing eight shows a week and nobody can do that. So, you know, again, your staff, you know, at that point, you know, Heidi Marshall in my office and Tiffany Little Canfield, you know, traveled Europe because, again, it wasn't equity. So thank God, you know, green card wasn't an issue uh, like as it, it is on most Broadway shows. And it wasn't a case of just going up town to Juilliard and saying, No, I mean, although we did and right. found some that way, but we went all over the country to find those kind of people. And again, you wind up doing pre-screen auditions. You do months and months of, you know, singing. And in that case, Baz Lerman was like, I'll teach them how to act. I need to start with the voice because it is La Boheme after all. Uh, so those are the things that keep me going. You know, you know, I mean, those kind of challenges and those kind of excitement. Well, sitting where we sit, it's easy to say, okay, opera singers who can act, actors who can play instruments. It's never that easy. Is there some <laughs> – well, to say that those are the difficult ones. Right, right, right. right. Uh, not that it's easy to find. It's no. easy for us to say those are the difficult shows. What would you say have been some of the most challenging shows you've ever had to cast and, and why, obviously? You know, it's funny. I mean, I, not because we were talking about it earlier, but Rent is still a really, really big one. You know, and it, and it was so, even when it became popular and every young kid wanted to be in it. You know, it was really tough to find, you know, guys to play Roger over the 12 years. You know, I mean, because, you know, if you're 20 and that handsome and that edgy and you can really sing rock and roll like that, you're not in the theater. Uh, you know, you're just not. That's not what you find in, you know, even the best musical theater schools around the country. And when you find them in rock clubs or in bands, you know, they're not really interested in when you say, you want to come on Broadway? (laughs) You know, so, you know, that has been a challenge the entire length of run. Uh, But then, you know, and and also because we had to maintenance it, you know, is challenging and probably in a different kind of way, Sweeney Todd and company were incredibly challenging, but also once you got your cast, except for maybe one or two or a little bit of uh, replacements, the shows didn't have that kind of a life that Rent did. So you weren't continuing to find. You know, they were one of a kind. They were almost like doing a movie. You know, you could find the cast to be in Across the Universe once. Uh, But Rent, just because we had to do it so often, there are certain parts. You know, Glinda is one of those 
challenging, challenging parts in a way, even more so than Elphaba and Wicked. Well, is it because the original performer had such a distinctive take and people are looking for that take? Uh, well, yes. I mean, Kristen was amazing, but Kristen aside, be- well, yes, because of Kristen did, f- I don't think if it was about the take that she did. Mm-hmm. I mean, yes, that was genius, but because of what her talent did, like she sings so incredibly high, it was written really high. So that opening moment, you know, it's set in stone. You know, maybe they could alter it, you know, a hair. But you need a soprano who is unbelievably high soprano. And the rest of the role is to be a comic genius. Well, mm-hmm. they don't normally mix. <laughs> huh. you, you know what I mean? Mm. Just they don't normally mix. <laughs> so it's really hard to find girls who sing that high and have the comic chops that really are like go with a character actress in a way. So that's become, you know, a role over the years, you know, that you go, God, that's really tricky. Well, you talk um, about going out, looking for people, sending your staff to Europe, doing yeah. you know, searches around the country and all that. Does the reverse happen? Do people send you 8 by 10 glossy? Do they send you their uh, material? We get hundreds a day. But you know what? It's still never enough. You know, you know what I mean? I mean, one of the beautiful things about working on the reality show for the Legally Blonde was, you know, which is why I wanted to even participate or was willing to. I didn't know what it was going to be like to be a judge and all of that. But it was like, you know what? This is a way for us to find new young girls. And even though on paper you go, oh, Legally Blonde, it's a young blonde girl, doesn't seem that hard. Well, you know what? We had been working on the show for two years and half of those girls, especially like the ones that were like in the final five, you know, didn't write, you know, they were young girls who were performing, but they were 18, 17, 20. They didn't write me. The show had been running, you know, had been around for two years. They never contacted me about, hey, can I be in Legally Blonde? I would love to audition for Legally Blonde. The girl was in LA. The girl was in Florida. The girl was in North Carolina. But it was because of the television show that somehow had a little further reach that they showed up at open calls. And out of that, three of them we cast in the show. So I feel like I never would have met them if we didn't do Mm -hmm. the reality show kind of thing. Well, when you did meet them on the TV show, it had to be in your mind, can they sustain eight performances a week? Oh, all of that, right. And that, you know, what was great about the TV show, we got to audition them so much to really see if they had the stamina. You know, part of the whole thing was... It's not going to be, you know, come in once and you're cast. Because that was the great thing about the reality show. If we didn't find someone, they weren't. it wasn't going to happen. You know, they really let it not be TV, but let it be like, we just want to film the creative process. Yes, we're making a television show and it was heightened and all of that. But they really let us do what we need to do to find a girl that can handle it. And, you know, Bailey was amazing that way. And, you know, so were the other finalists. So much so that we put them in the national tour. Uh, well, we, we, we got sure. sidetracked slightly yeah, yeah, sorry. On, on the MTV show because what I was driving at originally with the question of when you receive all these 8 by 10 glossies, all these right. hundreds of submissions every day, does that really work? Do, do you find people that way? Yeah. I and, mean, you know, you know, there's no right exact way to make uh-huh. something work. But, you know, specifically those do get gone through. Not necessarily by me, but, but by someone by on the staff, staff mm-hmm. who basically, you know, will take all the pictures and resumes that we receive and try to departmentalize them and try to put them in bins that 
accordingly right for that project. So these unsolicited kind of resumes might come in, but they feel like they're all right for Legally Blonde or right for Rent. They'll go in those bins. And then when we're actually going to start recasting or casting that project, we will really one by one go through them. And, you know, you- one, and we found people that way. I mean, one thing I do tell every actor is, you know, treat it like a business because, you know, getting a job is a business. Mm-hmm. And it's better for you to send a resume with a note saying, hi, I'm sending this so I could be seen for Wicked. So at least it will go in the Wicked box, mm-hmm. you know, rather than just a blank resume that says, hi, please hire me. Mm-hmm. You know, because at that given moment, you're like, well, I'm casting these 22 projects. Where do I put her? Mm-hmm. Uh, so you actually found people that way. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's not been one way. You know, now we even find people on YouTube, you know, you know, who doesn't find someone, you know, I mean, but like, come on, people put themselves on tape and they send it to us and we're like, oh my God, that person looks like they really have a good, you know, mostly for musicals. Mm-hmm. Uh, they really have Not a, a lot of real scenes on YouTube. No. no. Yeah, see, that was a challenge. <laughs> Jeez Louise, right? We didn't even talk about that, but go find an Emil who's, you know, oh, yeah, yeah, that was... I want to come back to the sure. reality show. You and I had a chance to speak a couple of years ago on one of the Wings television programs. And at that point, um, you had not been a figure on a television casting yeah. show. And I'm wondering, in general, what you think of – I wouldn't go so far as to call it a trend, but there's certainly a trendlet of in England and in Canada now and, and here about casting shows. Does that – does that in any way denigrate what you do or does it reduce the quality of what we could end up seeing on stage? Well, I think it it has the potential for denigrating the quality if you're going to allow the audience only to make the decisions. Uh, you know, I can't really judge the things that happened in London because I didn't see the final results. You know, what was wonderful and why we all agreed to do the Legally Blonde one because at the end of the day, the creative team on Broadway was making the decision. Yes, there might have been input from the television producers, but even they were like, right, we're making good television, you're making good theater. Right, and you weren't in a live studio with no. the so, women auditioning so in, in front of an So in that sense, audience. I see that as an incredible tool for me as a casting to use to cast my show. No different than, I think we said on your wing, I'm the biggest opponent, I mean, you know, supporter of American Idol. You know, for me, I can't wait for someone to lose because then I get to potentially cast them. <laughs> you know, because if they win, they're going to be a famous rock star or a pop star, and I won't necessarily get them. But if they lose, hey, they're now available to Broadway. And they're a commodity. And right. Have a so, value I, you know, so in that sense, the reality shows are great because we're still not going to hire anyone from who was a runner-up on American Idol if they're bad. Right. And we're still not going to hire someone in the Legally Blonde thing if she can't do what Laura Bell did. So in both those cases, anyone that we've put in a show for American Idol, we're really good. You know, Diana DeGarmo was really good in Hairspray and same with Bailey Hank. So I don't see that, you know, now there is a bad thing. Another interesting byproduct of the show that you were on, I suspect there have been people going to theater for years and years and years and maybe sharing the audience with top casting directors like yourself and no one knows they're there with them 
are you getting recognized now? Oh, uh, you know, <laughs> let's see. Because of the Legally Blonde thing, I got recognized in Great Adventure. <laughs> I took my kids to see Great Adventure, and uh, some girl came running up to me and said, there's the judge, there's the judge. <laughs> uh, so that was funny. But no, as as my my wife and my son say, whenever they feel like, I need an ego boost. They say, why don't you go hang out at the Palace Theater? I mean, if I go to the Palace Theater, I get recognized because those were all <laughs> Legally Blonde fans. So if you're a little down, I guess some of the yeah, yeah, they're like, you know, leave us alone and go to 47th Street. Uh, but no, I, you know, it, it, they're not recognizing me. Trust me. Let me ask the reverse of, of the reality show casting yeah. and all of that, which is stars, Hollywood stars coming to the stage. Do you have a role in trying to find out who's out there who'd like to be on stage oh, yeah. and trying to make – can you talk a little about yeah, that? Yeah, because, you know, again, in that scenario, it's all about the relationships uh, and producers that we work for a lot, you know, very much are relying on us to bring to their attention people that we think can really handle the stage and who might be – you know, the proper name that could help sell tickets, whether it be replacements or a new show. So, you know, besides us getting a project and then casting it with necessarily a name or not a name, you know, many times we're being asked, just find out who's interested in doing a play or theater and maybe we'll do a project around them. So, you know, I'm constantly on the search for, you know, actors on hiatus from their television shows or movie actors who want to take a little break and do a play. And sometimes we're hooking them up off Broadway at the signature or the Atlantic or my own theater MCC, or we're putting them in to replacements on Broadway. I mean, so that's a whole other side of casting. Uh, but, we're, it's a big one these days. Because well, probably one that got, that got the most attention in recent years was Julia Roberts in Three Days right, of Rain. Right, right, Was that your idea? Did no, she come to I, you? No. How, uh, how did she, that all happen? I, you know, I mean, yes, I was involved in that show, but that was something that Mark Platt, the producer, and Joe Montello, you know, they came to me saying, she you was know, we have Julia Roberts. Yeah. So if you, you know, find anybody who'd like to work with her? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right, right. It was, you know, going to be tough. But she... Uh, I don't know exactly the specifics of it, but Mark Platt and her knew each other, and she was really wanting to do a play, and, you know, that's what a job of a producer, and Mark hooked her and Joe Montello up, and they had a relationship over a few months that then developed into finding a piece. Now, getting somebody to do theater, to do Broadway or off-Broadway, who is a name, a movie star, it pays a lot less than movies do. Is that that a problem? Yeah. You know, it really has to come from the performer really, really, really wanting to do it. Uh, You know, it's an act, it's, it's a performer who really wants to do the stage, who's always wanted to do the stage. It has to always come from them first, you know what I mean? Because then they have to convince their L.A. team of agents and managers that this is something that's good for the soul or good for their career. But, you know, sometimes, again, it is the idea of the agent who says, you know what, we want to jumpstart someone's career again or or give them more attention than they've had. So, you know, it's always a different scenario depending on the project. But you also have to get the ones that can hold the stage. I mean, it's very hard you know, to put a star on a Broadway stage if they have had no stage experience or they just don't have the theater chops because we all know how hard it is to do eight times a week in front of a live audience. 
We've been talking primarily about you as a casting director. We did talk a little bit about MCC, which you started with uh, Bobby Lupone. Let's talk about 50 Words, which is now in previews, and it opens uh, very soon. Yeah. Uh, tell us a little bit about that show. Uh, it stars a guy that you've cast more than once, yeah, Nor- yeah. Norbert yeah, Leo yeah, Butts. Yeah. Gave him his first New York job, right? He was our first understudy in Rent, actually. In Rent, and then you had him in Dirty Rotten Scandals, right, and, and, and Wicked, of course, is Fierro, now Now I'm again. a big... Norbert fan, a big, big Norbert fan. Norby, uh, as he calls himself. Yeah, yeah, Norby, he does do that. <laughs> uh, but this was a play that uh, is written by Michael Weller, and uh, Austin Pendleton is directing it, and had been something that the two of them had been working on for a few years now. And uh, uh, friends of ours uh, invited Bobby and I and Will to see a little reading of the play. And in the hopes that maybe we would be interested in MCC in producing it. And, you know, it was, we went to this reading and there were a few other off-Broadway not-for-profit theater companies at that reading. And immediately upon hearing the play, I mean, I didn't even have to like talk to Bobby and Will. We just knew that this was a play that was in our minds. So MCC and something that really we wanted to bring to the stage. Uh, You know, we tend to respond to plays that really push the envelope or have, people talking or have extreme situations and uh, this is one of those plays this relationship that goes from A to Z and back to A between this couple who you know have been married and been together and this is the first time their nine year old is gone for the night and everything comes to fruition and we heard it and we immediately said we have to do it and Beth uh, Elizabeth Marvel was attached. I mean, you know, we were hoping she would do it, you know, even though this was a year ago and we said, we're going to do it in the fall of 08. Hopefully you'll do it and it will coincide with your other Broadway and theater and film stuff, which it did. And then we had to cast the male role and I was specifically passionate about Norbert. I mean, I am a huge fan and I know he hasn't shown most of New York what he really can do. I mean, yes, we all know how talented he is, but, you know, like everything, actors unfortunately get labeled, you know, they get asked to do the thing that they really were known, you know, for doing well. Uh, and I feel like MCC has always been about, you know, taking chances, not risks, but taking chances and giving people an opportunity to show themselves differently. And I, you know, that was, I guess that's the thing that I love about casting is because I feel like I see actors work so much in auditions, even if they don't get a job or they don't, you know, I got to see something that probably no one else got to see, which knows. And, you know, and then I feel like, you know, I know they have that capability of doing this. And I felt like it was really easy to say to Austin and Michael, you would love Norbert. I know you already love him, but you'll love him in this role. Give him that chance. And they trusted me in that situation. And, you know, here he is doing the play and he's amazing in it. 22 years after you left Simon and Cuban casting to work on MCC, there are other theater companies that have started later or started around the same time that now have buildings and big staffs. And how consciously have you chosen not to get encumbered or how much do you still hope to become the next Manhattan Theater Club coming up from off-Broadway? Being a Broadway theater company has never been our interest. Yes, we like being, you know, at 23 years later, a bigger off-Broadway theater than we were. 
Uh, we love being at the Lucille Lortel, and that's only been five years for us. And, you know, we love growing artistically and and growing with the artists that we work with. But I'm really satisfied with being, you know, an off-Broadway theater company that gets to take risks. And, you know, whether it's 199 seats or 299 seats, sure, we want our own home. Uh, we do feel like we have a home at the Lortel, and that is what's wonderful about being there. Sure, we would love our own plant because just from an artistic and scheduling situation, it would be easier. We'd be able to extend shows, you know. We just did Reasons to be Pretty and we extended it four weeks, but normally we can't because we're locked into... I mean, we did not get to extend Reasons to be Pretty because we were locked into certain dates at Lortel. And if we had our own home, we would be able to extend. Uh, but, you know, and sure, we want to raise more money so we can maybe have more staff... Uh, you know, we're very happy with this sort of situation with the board of directors that we have and our staff. And sure, more money always helps, but it's not because we want to be a Broadway theater. But you, in fact, are moving reasons to be pretty. We'll move to Broadway in yes. January. Yes. I mean, we're wonderfully lucky that Jeffrey Richards and Jerry Frankel and Steve uh, all came to see the show and loved it from early previews. And they, along with MCC, are going to move it to Broadway. Great. Well... Wish you all the best with that, and uh, casting director by day and producer, <laughs> artistic director by night. Sure. Bernie, thanks so much for being with us today oh, sure. on Downstage Center. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Bernie. For the thanks. American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theater Wing is available online, on demand, for free from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John Von Susten for Downstage Center. That is a wrap, and thank you. The American Theatre Wing encourages all of our podcast fans to share our programs with friends and colleagues, but we remind you that any commercial distribution, commercial use of our programs, or program modification is prohibited without our express permission. We appreciate your cooperation and invite you to contact us with any questions. Thanks for listening.